to um, this passage of Scripture this morning, uh, I do want to just pause uh, for a, a moment of prayer again. Um, maybe not everyone's aware in here, but um, yesterday um, Warren and Monica contacted us, and Monica's mother passed away yesterday, and so we need to be praying for the family and praying for her, obviously, as they go through this. Um, you know, um, it seems like uh, I think people who have been involved in churches before or who have been on the mission field or different things like this, it seems like uh, challenges come in waves. <laughs> and so this is one of those weeks, and this is just one of the ripples in the waves for one of the families in our church. And so let's pray for uh, the goldsmiths right now. Heavenly Father, we lift up the Goldsmith family. We lift up Monica and her family. And uh, Lord, we thank you that, according to um, Warren, that Monica's mother was a Christ follower, a Christian, a believer, one who'd put all her hope in you. And so, God, I thank you for that. But Lord, it's still difficult on this side of eternity to let go of loved ones and await the moment that we can see them again. But so, God, I just pray, Father, for your comfort, for your strength during this time. Uh, be a great encouragement to them. May they find their, um, Lord, their peace in you. Um, Lord, may this uh, unfortunate and sad time in their life be an opportunity for the gospel to go forth, for the witness of Monica's faith and her mother's faith to shine forth to those who perhaps are unbelievers who will hear about this or who will attend the funeral. So we ask your hand upon the family at this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start off this morning by asking in here, kids, if you might know, or parents, you can answer as well. Do you have anybody famous in your family tree, in your lineage? Anybody here related to somebody just famous? What? Yeah. Richard Wright from Pink Floyd. Oh, so a, a member of Pink Floyd. Okay, now I know Richie. Okay, it's making sense now. All right, so, all right, a band member of Pink Floyd. Okay, and any others? Oh, Kyler. Anybody? Okay. Travis McCoy. Travis McCoy. Nobody knows who he is. Who is? He's the lead singer of Jim Class Heroes. All right. So we've got a couple of band members that, have, that are related to people in our church. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. All right. Oh, well, that's, that's pretty. Your brother played in the NFL. Okay. What's his name? Okay, all right. I haven't heard him, but I'm sure he was awesome. All right. Okay. Anybody else? Cortland. Really? Ulysses S. Grant. Okay. In, in Cortland's lineage there. Wow. Let me share with you. Let me share with you my claim to fame. All right, I'll bring up the next slide here if this will work. All right. Does anybody know who that is? Striking man is throwing the ball there for the New York Yankees. 
It is a Mr. Doyle, if you'll notice his, uh, his signature here. All right. That is my family's claim to fame. That is Brian Doyle, a cousin of mine. Now, he is like second or third, but it doesn't matter. He's a cousin. He's my brother, right? <laughs> Brian Doyle. Uh, Brian Doyle played uh, baseball for the Yankees, and he also played for the A's for a while. And uh, his shining moment came in the 1978 World Series. In the 1978 World Series, had it not been for Bucky Dent, who had a little bit better statistics during that series, Brian would have won the MVP of the series. Here are his stats from the World Series. He batted 438 during the series. He had seven hits, six RBIs, and four runs scored. Game six was his big game. And, of course, this is a picture of him uh, completing a double play, uh, throwing out, um, I don't know who the other unfamous person is there in number 34. So this is our family's claim to fame. We have a cousin who played Major League Ball. Now, never mind that the rest of his Major League career, he only hit 161. And uh, I think only was actually started maybe 30 games after this one. But that's okay. He had an amazing World Series. And from that point forward, I became a New York Yankees fan, unfortunately. Now, we love to talk about famous people in our family line, in our heritage. We love to talk about famous people in our family tree. But we also like to forget about some of the bad apples on our family tree. Noah, go ahead and go to the next slide so we'll bring that off. We like to forget some of the not-so-good people in our lineage because it makes our tree <coughs> look a little dysfunctional. And I apologize, that is not the title of today's message. The title of today's message is The Lineage of the Promised King. The Lineage of the Promised King. Today we continue, as Deemer mentioned, our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which in reality is a uh, sort of a verse-by-verse series through the Gospels, but we're harmonizing the Gospels. We're just going to go through a, a, a Gospel harmony, walking through the life of Christ, looking at Jesus' earthly ministry, and last week we began before time began, John 1, 1. And this week we come to another beginning of sorts, a genesis of sorts. We begin with the genealogy of Jesus. The word genealogy here in the Greek literally is the word genesis. So in a very real way, the birth of Jesus marked a new genesis, the new beginning of the recreation, the redemption, and the restoration of man and the whole universe. Now, when I was in seminary, my professors told me that you don't start a sermon off without something really good to capture people's attention. The beginning of your sermon is very, very important, according to the professors who taught me. And, um, and it's the same way if you're writing a story or you're writing an article. Uh, you want to have a good beginning, a good attention grabber. Any good author, any good speaker will do that. So you may be thinking here, as Matthew starts off the book of Matthew, his gospel narrative, as he begins it with a genealogy, you may be saying, what a bad way to start a book. With a genealogy? Are you serious? I mean, come on. I mean, genealogies, let's be honest, we usually kind of gloss over those. 
I mean, if you've done a Bible reading plan where you're reading through the Bible, maybe chronologically, or you're reading, you have a, a systematic, you, just be honest, when you get to the genealogies, your eyes begin to glaze over, and you begin to get kind of sleepy, because that's just the way we react to a genealogy. And they seem to be, to us, of no real value. It's just information, just historical information. They strain our pronunciation skills, but Deemer did a phenomenal job this morning. They're boring. And we certainly wouldn't call a genealogy an exciting beginning to a sermon. Well, I don't think that Matthew wrote his gospel haphazardly. Besides the fact that underneath Matthew is the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. And actually, this genealogy is a quite fascinating intro, especially if you're a Jew. And the Jews were Matthew's primary audience for his gospel. It was written in large part as an evangelistic tool aimed at his fellow Jews to persuade them and to have them recognize that Jesus was the long-awaited king, the Messiah, to recognize that God's kingdom had come and was coming into the world. So Jesus, I mean, so Matthew here begins by pointing out that this Jesus came from the lineage of David, that he was a king. The Jews took their tribal lineage very seriously. They took their pedigree very seriously. Tribal lineage meant so much to the Jew. If you remember when they went into the promised land, how did they divide up the land? They divided up the land based upon tribes. And you had to know what family you were part of, what clan you were part of, what tribe you were part of. It was very, very important. That's why in the Old Testament alone, there are more than 50 genealogies. It was very important for the Jew. And for a Jew to embrace the Messiah, he must have proof that the man has the pedigree, the royal and legal lineage of David in order to be the Messiah. He had to be a descendant of David. Thus, this beginning of Matthew is actually very extraordinary, and it makes for an, ex- an extraordinary claim in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you know the name Jesus, so let's just break down that. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. If you know the name Jesus, you know that it means it's Yeshua or Joshua, and it means God saves. So Jesus, God saves, and then Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it is his title. Christ is Christos, or the anointed one, or Messiah. So Jesus, God saves, Christ, the Messiah, son of David, he is the king, he is royalty, and son of Abraham. He is a Jew, but he's more than just a Jew, because the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, is the promised one who is going to bring the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. And so it's an extraordinary beginning actually here to this book of Matthew. Matthew is saying, let me give you the genesis, the origins, the genealogy of the man named God saves, who is the anointed one, heir to the throne of David, and the one through whom God promises, God's promises to Abraham will come to fulfillment. And by the Holy Spirit's providential guidance, these are not only the first words of the book of Matthew, they are the first words of the whole New Testament. God knew how to start a story. He isn't starting with some sort of offbeat, boring 
genealogy. This is an extraordinary claim. After 400 years of silence, God's word comes fresh and new. And here's his word. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Everything from this, from before had pointed to this time, to this perfect beginning, this new beginning in history. And it's not to be glossed over. It's not boring. It's not to just be ignored. Long ago, Hebrews 1 tells us, and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, all of this is, to, is not to say that looking at a genealogy doesn't have a certain amount of challenges and difficulties. I mean, how do we approach this text? I asked myself that question all week long. All week long and into last night. How do, you, how do you preach a genealogy? I mean, we could look at how God was sovereignly orchestrating events in human history and how he works through real people in real time with real historical events. Or we could look at God's reliability to fulfill his plans and promises. We could look at how Jesus doesn't just show up out of nowhere. He has a real heritage, a real lineage, a real ethnicity, a real family. And all those things will come out. But here's what I want us to focus on today because of the series we're in. I want us to focus on what this text teaches us about who Jesus is. We are, after all, seeking to see and savor Jesus Christ. What does this text tell us about Jesus This genealogy, after all, is a validation of Jesus and who he claimed to be. We see who he is by simply looking at the structure here of Matthew's genealogy. He gives gives us sort of an outline in two places. First of all, in verse 1, like we already mentioned, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice there's three names here. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we read the threefold structure at the very end of the genealogy in Matthew 1.17. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So there's a threefold structure there. Now, a quick note here on these numbers. Let me just... You, you look at that text and you talk about the 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations... Now, it's very clear, if you take Matthew's genealogy and compare it to some of the Old Testament genealogies of the, of the kings, and you look at Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3, you'll see here that Matthew skips some names, which is very common in ancient genealogies. The father of, in the ESV, literally is beget. Okay, so if you have the uh, King James, it'll say so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget. Okay, which could also mean the ancestor of. It doesn't have to mean an immediate father. So Matthew intentionally structures this thing with 14 generations in each one of the three segments. Why? Because numbers were, very, were also very important to ancient times for symbolic reasons. They meant something. And in this case, they represent the completeness of God's plans and purposes. Or as the Apostle Paul would say it in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So with that in mind, we see a, a threefold structure here. And I want us to see 
three things that Matthew is announcing with this genealogy. Three things that Matthew is announcing with this genealogy. And here's the first thing. Matthew is announcing the arrival of the king. The arrival of the king. He is announcing or he is declaring the arrival of the king. God had made a promise through a prophet named Nathan to David a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And it says this in 2 Samuel 7. That God would raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that was the promise that there would come a king from the line of David. And we know this wasn't just talking about his immediate son Solomon but because this is talking about an eternal kingdom. There would come a king who would establish a throne forever. Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever, forever, but another son of David, a seed from David, would come who would have an everlasting kingdom. And that's what Jesus, that's who Jesus was. That's what the Jews were awaiting. The Messiah, or the anointed one, is Jesus, the Christ, the first and foremost king of Israel. Kings were anointed. They were set apart. They were chosen. And Matthew declares here that Jesus is the anointed one, the king. Who is this king of glory? It's Jesus. Now there were a lot of people going around in Jesus' day claiming to be the Messiah. Matter of fact, there was, that was a very common thing happening in Jesus' day. Part of the political, I think a few weeks back we talked about the political environment of the day when Jesus was, was alive and and the, the, the tensions and, and with Rome. And, all, and one of the things that was happening was lots of people were rising up and calling themselves the Messiah and trying to lead a revolt against Rome. But one way of debunking the claims of those who would stand up and say they were the Messiah was to show that they did not come from the line of David. But Jesus, through Joseph, but not only through Joseph, but also, as we'll see next week, through Mary is from the line of David. He is of a royal pedigree. And by the way, after A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple, do you know that all Jewish genealogical records have been lost? There is no way for a Jew today with certainty to show his genealogical descent from any certain specific tribe in Israel or from any specific family. And Orthodox Jews today believe they're still awaiting the Messiah. So if someone were to come today and say, I'm claiming to be the Messiah, there is no possible way that he can prove he is from the lineage of David. God did away with all possibility of that ever happening at A.D. 70. Jesus is the last and only to claim that he was from the line of David. He's the only one that can make that claim. So today if someone steps forth and says, hey, I'm the Messiah... Have them prove it. They can't. But Jesus, Matthew here, proves that Jesus is from the Davidic, Davidic uh, lineage. He is the king. During Jesus' day, there were certainly some who thought that God's promise to David had failed. Matter of fact, Psalm 89 is written during the exile. And it's written during the exile, and there's, there's a certain amount of desperation in that psalm. And the psalmist reminds God of the promise that God had made to David, that, that a descendant from David would sit on the throne. And you can almost hear the desperation in the psalmist's voice as he's wondering, God, are you going to keep this promise? Are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to put your king on the throne? 
And the lineage had been obscured during the exile, during the 400 silent years between the Testaments as well. But it had not evaporated completely. It continued in obscurity, and it continued into a little no-name town, into the home of a little no-name carpenter and his family. The snake had tried to kill the lineage, but it had failed. One of the neat themes throughout the Old Testament is Satan's attempt to destroy the lineage. Because Satan heard Genesis 3. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, he's trying to destroy the lineage. And God's always, because God is God, one step ahead of Satan. Isn't it interesting how God chooses oftentimes the one you don't expect to be the one who's going to be to carry the lineage of, of the Messiah all throughout the Old Testament? Our kids are seeing that or will see that as they continue to go through the Old Testament. And so the snake had tried to kill the lion. Maybe he thought he had succeeded during the exile. But God's kingly line of David continued. The shoot from the root of Jesse continued. Jesus, therefore, rules and reigns. And this is all about his kingdom. And his kingdom is not of this world, although it is breaking into this world as he redeems, restores, and recreates all things. He came not conquering nations and kings, but conquering death and hell. And he came as a king who will also return as a conquering king one day to lay claim to all that belongs to him. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. Friends, I want us to see that. I want us to see the kingship of Jesus and savor it. I'm not sure how you view Jesus. But he was, he is, and he always will be the king of the universe. And you are either under his lordship or you are rebelling against his lordship, but he's lord regardless. You are either under his lordship or you are rebelling against his lordship, but he's lord regardless. He's the king, whether you acknowledge him or not. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the Image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Matthew wants his Jewish brothers to see that their king has arrived. He's here. But not just that the king had arrived, but that the great promises that God had made to Abraham were being fulfilled in this same Jesus. So the second thing that Matthew is announcing is the fulfillment of God's promises. The fulfillment of God's promises. Go back one for me, buddy. The fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus was not only the son of David, but also the son of Abraham. Now, as I said earlier, this is not just a designation of Jesus' ethnicity as a Jew. All Jews were sons of Abraham, ethnically speaking. Matthew is not necessarily going out of his way to prove that. He has more in mind. He has Genesis 12 in mind. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing 
I will bless those who bless you, and in him, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here it is. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a promise. Abram, who was old and childless, would not only become the father of a nation, but his offspring would bless the entire world. When Matthew calls Jesus the son of Abraham, he is announcing that the one, the seed, the offspring has arrived. And through him the world was, was being and was going to be blessed. Matter of fact, Jesus was not only the one through whom the blessing would come, he himself was the blessing. God gave his son to the world. And only through the one, the only begotten son, can the world experience the fullest measure of God's blessings. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, but it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is the Christ. And earlier in Galatians, Paul had said, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is what Matthew was announcing. The blessing to the nations was now underway through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The promises of God had found their yes and amen in Jesus. My friends, if you're here this morning and you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then you were in view in Galatians 12. And Genesis 12, I'm sorry. You were in mind when God made that promise to Abram. God had planned it. Nothing could stop it. Not even an old-aged, childless, nothing, traveling shepherd like Abraham Abraham had faith, and we are the heirs of Abraham by faith in the one offspring promised 2,000 years prior to his arrival on earth, Jesus. Matthew is making an announcement that the Holy Spirit was using to kickstart the whole New Testament. One, that Jesus was the long-awaited king to reign forever. And two, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises God had made to Abraham so long ago. And we also see through this genealogical record that Matthew is announcing, number three, the incarnation of grace. This genealogical record is a declaration of the grace of God. God's sovereign grace can be seen throughout it. And now Jesus has arrived as the embodiment of grace. First we see it in the nation of Israel itself. From this nothing, then this man named Abram, who was told to leave his home, from nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God creates a nation. He births a nation. And so the first section, Abraham to David, is the, is the section of the patriarchs. The birth of a nation. And then he mentions David to the exile. This was the fall of the nation. From a golden age to rebellion, to judgment, and to exile. And then we have from the exile to Christ. Obscurity, hopelessness, to now the arrival of hope in the person of Christ. Israel is a microcosm of the whole human race. A picture of our sinful rebellion, our exile from God. And we all remain in exile until Christ arrives, until he breaks into our hearts, invading rebellious, hard hearts to change them and make them new. But more than that, 
as we look through this genealogical record here, and we look at the names that Matthew has selected to be in this record, we have a beautiful demonstration, a beautiful example of the sovereign grace of God at work. Because when we look at this, we see some pretty unsavory characters in the genealogy. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have skeletons on your family tree. I think we probably all do. Have you ever been to a family reunion and you're like, oh, I can't believe so-and-so is here. Okay? Maybe they've brought disrepute to the family. Who knows? But we've all got some termites infesting our family tree somewhere in the lineage. This is one of the great proofs of the accuracy of Matthew's genealogy. If this were a myth or a legend that he was just creating, why would he include some of the names he includes here? Because he includes some names here of some pretty dysfunctional members. Some pretty dysfunctional uh, branches on the family tree. But it demonstrates God's sovereign grace at work in the midst of a sinful and rebellious people. Let's examine it a little closer. If you notice, probably as we read through it, you probably noticed there was a mention of some women's names in this genealogy. Now that in and of itself was unheard of in ancient genealogies. So Matthew does this for a purpose. If he's going to throw the names of five women in there, he's doing it for a reason. Now the last name is Mary, and we're not necessarily going to focus on her, but the first four. It's very interesting that Matthew throws those names in there. Why would he do that? Well, I think it's to demonstrate that through the lineage of Christ, the nature of Christ is that he is a king of grace and mercy. So let's look at the four women. First we have Tamar. Next we have Rahab, then we have Ruth, and then we have it listed here as the wife of Uriah. Now let's talk about Tamar. And I can only talk so much about Tamar because it's a pretty much an R-rated story from Genesis chapter 38. But here's the deal. Judah's sons had acted, acted wickedly, and they had not fulfilled their duties as not only... His husband, uh, Tamar's husband, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. And her first husband died because of his wickedness. Second husband was supposed to marry her and then bring up children. And God struck him down because of his unfaithfulness in that task. Now Tamar is desperate for children. She wants to have some kids. And so she comes up with a plan. And her plan was simply this. To dress up like a prostitute. To trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her so she could have children. And she did. She had twins. One of which is Perez, who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And some scholars believe that Tamar was possibly even a Canaanite. Because we know that Judah had married a Canaanite. So it wouldn't be surprising at all that his children married Canaanite women as well. So not only was she this sinful person who came up with this disgusting plan to try to orchestrate this means of having children, and she's not the only one that's sinful in the story because Judah acts sinfully as well as do his children. It's this whole, whole sordid, ugly, nasty tale. Why would you even want that in the lineage? If Matthew's making this up, he can, he can bring Jesus through another line. He doesn't need to go through Perez. Well, maybe he does, but he can just leave out Tamar then. Let's just mention Perez, and hopefully no one will remember how Perez came about. But Matthew goes out of his way not only to say, yes, Jesus came through Perez. Let me remind you how Perez came on the scene. He is the son of Tamar. Which every Jewish reader, this was written to the Jews, would have immediately remembered the story. 
Oh my goodness. And then there's Rahab. Rahab didn't just dress up like a prostitute. That was her profession. She was a prostitute. She was also a Canaanite. But she's the one who hid the spies when the spies came into Jericho. She hid the spies and allowed them to escape. And they saved her life. They, they spared her when, when, when Jericho was destroyed. She too is in the lineage of Jesus. She gave birth to a son named Boaz. Now, we have a lady that dressed up like a prostitute to trick someone. Now we have an actual prostitute in the lineage of Jesus. Could have just left all that out, right? Then there's Ruth. Now, Ruth wasn't necessarily an unsavory character, but she was a Moabitess. You see, the Moabites were not good people. They were sexually perverse people whom God judged severely when they had enticed Israel into sin. But their origins are even more sordid. You see, the Moabites are the result of Lot's daughters after Sodom had been destroyed. Lot's daughters getting him drunk and sleeping with their father so that they could have children. Moab was the product of incest. And out of Moab came Ruth in the lineage of the Messiah. And then we have the mention of the wife of Uriah, which I think is very interesting that Luke chose to just word it that way. Do you know who the wife of Uriah was? You probably know it better if we mentioned her name, Bathsheba. And you remember Bathsheba. She was the one who was sunbathing on the roof while David was up there as well and saw her and subsequently they committed adultery. And they tried to hide their adultery through a series of schemes, the last of which was simply to have Uriah killed in battle. Uriah, by the way, was one of David's closest friends and loyal warriors. And from that unholy union came Solomon. And we have the lineage continuing. Not only that, Bathsheba was probably also a foreigner. Uriah was a Hittite, meaning he probably was married to a Hittite as well. So we got the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. We've got uh, Ruth, a Moabitess. We have Rahab from Jericho. And we have Tamar, who very well likely may have been a Canaanite woman as well. Not only do we have dysfunction and sin and disgusting, sordid sin, we also have people who are not of the ethnicity of Abraham in this lineage as well. You hear all this and you think that your family's dysfunctional? This is some serious dysfunction. How scandalous. In the lineage were outcasts, foreigners, sinners, the most disgusting of sin, disappointments, rebellion. And we haven't even looked at the kings yet that are mentioned in here, some of whom were some pretty bad people. But what do we see? Why does, why does Matthew include so much sin in the lineage of Jesus? Why does Matthew let us see so much of the nastiness of sin in this line? So that we may more fully understand the glory of the grace of God in the life of Jesus Christ. We see sin in the line of Jesus Christ so we can proclaim the glory of Jesus' grace through his life. 
in the lineage, we see sovereign grace abounding. Where the trespass increases in human history, down through the lineage of man, grace abounds. We see grace invading into the human lineage, marred and polluted with the most disgusting of sins. We see grace overwhelming a human lineage that is dysfunctional to the core. God ruling and reigning in grace. Matthew is announcing that the king of kings... The promised seed of Abraham who would bless the world had come and had descended into the mire of humanity to take on flesh. This king, the promised one, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And because himself he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Grace incarnate, Gentiles, immoral, sinners, rebels, yet God at work in the midst of the nastiness and filth of sinful humanity to bring his son into the world. Matthew knew all of this too well. For he himself, being a tax collector, was the lowest of the low in Jewish society. He was one of the worst types of sinners in in the Jews' bush. Because if you know about tax collectors, they worked for the enemy, basically. They worked for the Romans. They were sellouts. They taxed their own people. And besides that, they had, they had permission for the Romans to take however much they needed aside for themselves, so long as the Romans got their taxes. They were hated. They were associated with prostitutes and, and other types of vile sinners. Matthew was Tamar the harlot in many ways. He was the immoral one exacting taxes and keeping money for himself. Yet one day, grace incarnate spoke into his life. And out of nothing, ex nihilo, created faith. And Matthew 9, 9 says that as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And then we continue to read that Matthew apparently, after this experience with Christ decides to throw a party, I'm guessing, to probably share the glorious news of the coming of the Messiah with his, with his uh, tax collector friends. Verse 10 says, And as Jesus reclined at the table, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And if only the Pharisees could have seen their illness, if only they could have seen the cancer of sin that no amount of law-keeping could ever have eradicated, if they only could have seen that grace incarnate had arrived and that forgiveness of sins was now available by faith in Jesus, the one who fulfilled the Abrahamic promises, the one who was the true king of Israel, descended from David, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, had arrived, if only they had eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's the glorious opening of Matthew's gospel. 
It's absolutely glorious. Jesus is glorious. A king of grace. This is the lineage of grace. And it's our lineage too if we are in Christ. For I was Tamar. Living for myself. Deceiving and and being deceived. Immoral to the core. I was a harlot who exchanged the truth for a lie. I was the wife of Uriah, lusting after this world, unable to resist sin, and I justly deserve the due penalty of my sin. But by God's grace, I was also Rahab, and upon hearing of the delivering God and the saving works of God, I put my hope and faith in Him. By His grace alone, I put my hope in the scarlet flow of Jesus' blood, and by His mercy and His mercy alone, I was saved and delivered. I was Ruth a foreigner, an outcast, yet I was brought in, grafted into the people of God when my kinsman redeemer came to me and put his wings of protection over me and I am his forever. This is my story and it's your story. This was a dysfunctional family tree. If you go to the self-help section in any bookstore, you'll find plenty of books to try to help you overcome the dysfunction in your family. Dysfunction in your marriage, dysfunction in your children, dysfunction in the workplace, dysfunction, dysfunction. I just wish they'd call it what it is. Dysfunction is simply sin. You come from a dysfunctional family, so do I. It's because we all come from a sinful family. Your family tree became dysfunctional when your first parents ate from another tree. From that moment, the world awaited one who would enter into the dysfunction and make all things new. And Matthew is announcing, he has arrived. He's here. I'm not sure what dysfunction you're coming to Harbin's with this morning. It may be family related. It may be marriage related. It may be some habitual sin. It may be some hidden, dark secret. I don't know your dysfunction. But I know the one who came to deliver you from it. I know the one who descended into dysfunction to save for himself a people. To forgive the trespasses and to give them a righteousness and life without cost. Jesus, God saves. The Christ, the anointed one. To bring salvation for all the peoples of the world. For he was the promised king of kings who is reigning and will reign in justice and truth forever. Endeavor. So I'm not sure if you have any famous people on your family heritage in your family tree anywhere. But I do know this, that if you'll come to Christ in faith today, renouncing and repenting of your sins and casting all your hope on him by faith, you will be saved and you will have a new family lineage, a new bloodline. You will become a co-heir with Christ a son of God, and a member of the royal family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way you started the New Testament. And I ask your forgiveness for the many times that I've just sort of glossed over that genealogy. By your Holy Spirit, Father, you inspired those words and you wanted the whole world to see the historical evidence that your son Jesus was indeed the king. 
the historical evidence that your son Jesus was the promised one to Abraham. And the historical evidence that Jesus didn't just appear out of nothing and exist in some sort of vacuum, but that he descended into the mire and muck of human dysfunction. There are Tamars, Rahab's, Ruth's, Bathsheba's, all throughout this room, myself included. And our only hope for life, our only hope is not in somehow finding a self-help book to help us overcome our dysfunction. Our only hope is that Jesus, who came into humanity, will save us from this sinful plight that we face. Oh, Jesus, forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We put our faith in you. We put our trust in you. We ask now that you reign. Reign in our hearts. Reign in our homes. Come, Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.